Well, hey, good morning. Now, if you're listening with the audio-only podcasts, and you can find those on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, uh, at, just after search Faith on Hill, then you wouldn't know this. But we are not in our normal recording space. I want to welcome you to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. We gather every Sunday morning, both online and in person, at 10:30 a.m. Now, in person. Uh, we are at the church building on Hill Road, and uh, the church built the, the the meeting room is decorated. We decorated last Sunday after church. We had a lot of fun. We ate some cookies. We decorated, listened to some Christmas music. Uh, so we are ready to go. We're decorated. We are ready for the Christmas season, uh, and we'll be uh, singing Christmas carols together, worshiping the Lord Jesus together through song, through prayer, through fellowship and community, through giving. Uh, there's kids' church. And then uh, we're continuing our, our look at prophecies concerning Christmas, and we're going to look at the same, uh, you know, same passage of scripture that we're looking at on the online service this morning. So that's what happens in person. Now online, we gather every Sunday morning, and you can live stream the video at faithonhill.com. Video is always available on our Facebook page, and you can listen uh, to the audio-only podcasts for all of the podcasts that we release. Uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now, you're saying, well, Adam, you said you're not in the normal place. Why not? Well, there's a school Christmas concert happening, and our uh, church stage is being uh, used this week, and so it's not available for recording. So I'm at home. This is my Christmas tree. This is my hawking, uh, my hawkings, my stockings hung with care. And uh, so we're at my house recording uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5. Now, if you need to pause, Hit pause to find where Micah is. It's understandable. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. You keep going, Amos, Micah. He's one of the minor prophets, not widely read, but we're going to look at Micah chapter 5 and the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now the prophet Micah, writing somewhere around 600 maybe 700 years before the coming of Jesus, said this, 
Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flocks in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he, he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds and eight commanders who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like a dew from the Lord, like showers on grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on a man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among a flock of many sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies. All your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you, demolish your chariots. I will destroy your cities of your land and tear down your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you and you will no longer draw bows. To, or, sorry, you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you the Asherah poles. When I demolish your cities, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. This is God's word. We believe it. Help us to live by it, we pray. Now, Bethlehem is kind of a big deal for Christians. And it's one of those biblical things that is even known among non-Christians in the world around us. You know, it used to be that biblical references were the norm, right? That, that in the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, Americans learned to read by reading the King James Bible. Uh, I am not, nor have I ever been, somebody who is uh, particularly fond of the King James Bible for a lot of reasons. I don't believe that you know, there's a group of Christians that are referred to as King James only. Uh, I am not in support of that at all. I don't think that that is a superior translation of the Bible. Uh, I don't think it's the only translation of the Bible. But I also recognize its importance in human history, in Western history, and in church history. I recognize its value and its worth in history, both secular and sacred. But because so many Americans 
in the 1800s especially, the 1700s especially, learned to read by reading the King James Bible. Bible references were commonplace. Even a non-believer, somebody who had no interest in the things of God, would know the references of the scriptures because they themselves had read it. Yet today, we could say, oh man, the world is getting darker and things are getting worse. Outside, I'm worried about the inside. Fewer and fewer Christians, fewer and fewer church-going people read the Bible. Fewer and fewer people who profess faith in Jesus have read the Bible front to back. Micah is not a well-read prophet. Now, there's valid reasons for that. I'm not saying that you should read Micah more than the Gospels. I'm not saying that it's surprising to me that somebody has read Micah more than uh, the story of King David or, or more than the story of Moses. Not, no, not at all. But Micah is one of the minor prophets. He's one of the, the lesser read books of the Bible. He was a contemporary, most likely, of prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and maybe Ezekiel. He was in that time leading up to the Babylonian captivity. And we read about it here. You might remember last week, we talked about how Isaiah was a prophet in Israel and God called him to go speak to the king Ahaz and to give him a word of encouragement to bolster him because the kings of Assyria and the northern kingdom of Israel had come against him and laid siege to him. Micah is talking about the same thing when he says, marshal your troops for a siege is laid against us. He's either saying prophetically this is coming or he's writing in the moment this is happening. He prophesied during the reign of King Ahaz. And he says in this time when all seems lost and he says the king, our ruler, will be struck with a rod. We talked about that last week, how King Ahaz was dragged away in chains and humiliated. And that's a national humiliation when your king is, is carried away in chains. But he says, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler whose origins are from ancient times and who rules in the power of God. Now, I said a minute ago, Bethlehem is kind of a big deal. It's this thing that even people who have no frame of reference for biblical things know about. Oh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, or Bethlehem's connected to Christmas somehow. Bethlehem is a place people are aware of. Even though in our own day, Bethlehem is a totally unimportant city. It does not matter. Geopolitically, as important as Israel and Palestine are, geopolitically, Bethlehem itself does not matter. And in the course of the Bible and biblical history, Bethlehem actually doesn't matter. The reason that Bethlehem gets an outsized uh, weight or impression in the mind of many, if not most, Bible-reading people is for two reasons. One is King David and the second is Jesus. Because we, we read more about David and more about Jesus than we do about most other parts of the Bible. And David was born in Bethlehem. Uh, the book of Ruth happens in Bethlehem. Uh, Jesus born in Bethlehem. There are Christmas songs about Bethlehem. It gets this big place. But for most of Israel's history, Bethlehem did not 
matter. Before King David, it was a totally unimportant place. And even after King David, it had this association with the the royal house. It had this association, the ancestral home of the house of, of the king. But the king had long gone. David didn't live in Bethlehem after he became king. He lived in Jerusalem, the capital. Solomon, his son, and his heirs after that did not go back to Bethlehem other than for like events where you needed to go back to your ancestral home for like certain feasts and things. The king stayed in his palace. Bethlehem was a backwater. Jesus went there because that was the ancestral home of his earthly foster father, Joseph, and his biological mother, Mary. They were both of the line of David from different branches. But as they went, it was again, not not like a big place to like, oh, that's the happening place to be. Bethlehem was a forgotten place. It was an unimportant place. In Micah's day, Bethlehem did not matter. And so he's saying to them, even though armies are against us, there is a siege against our capital city out of Bethlehem. And he calls it Bethlehem Ephrathah because he's specifying it. There are multiple Bethlehems, right? Um, You know, living out here in the American West, you can tell where settlers came from, right? There, there are towns that have names that are obviously named after somewhere. They, I mean, we live in Milwaukee, right? Milwaukee, you, you know that somebody came here from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And why is Milwaukee, Oregon spelled differently than Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Well, it's because Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, the way that we spell it here in Oregon was an early spelling of Milwaukee until, and there was apparently multiple ways of spelling Milwaukee and then they like codified it at some point with the different spelling. But somebody came here to Oregon and named this area, Milwaukee, Oregon, after Milwaukee, Wisconsin, after Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but used that earlier spelling, Uh, you know. Des Moines, Washington, I worked in Des Moines for a little bit, named after Des Moines, Iowa. There are places you'll drive through and then randomly a place, you know, Aberdeen, Washington is, where did that, somebody settled there who had a connection to Aberdeen, maybe it was an Aberdeen on the East Coast, but that Aberdeen would have originally been named after Aberdeen, Scotland. You know, New York City. New York is a reference to Old York. York, England, where I actually lived for six months while I was in Bible college. Uh, I was was at an extension campus there. We name things after places, right? And so there are multiple Bethlehems. And so he's specifying, no, this is the Bethlehem where King David is from. This is the Bethlehem in Judah. This is the Bethlehem. This one is where the Messiah will be born. I want to think about this. There are no small places. Bethlehem was and remains unimportant, other than for King David and for Jesus, totally unimportant. And in that moment, what important thing would happen there? All of the attention of everyone in the nation was elsewhere. But Micah is saying, hey, look over there. That's where God's going to bring deliverance from. There are no small places, even in a time when people were looking, actively looking for the Messiah, which is about the time when Jesus came on the scene. The the people of Israel had been conquered 
by the Romans. The Romans were occupying them. They had a puppet king in the south in King Herod. They had governors in the north. They, they had Roman soldiers in the land. They were not a free people and they were actively looking for their savior, their Messiah, to deliver them. Even then, we know from Matthew's gospel, when the wise men showed up and they said, hey, we're here to see the Messiah. And they show up to Jerusalem, assuming that's where the king would be born. They say, there's a king who was born. We have seen his star in the east and we have come to give him honor. He's not here. No king has been born in Jerusalem. And they say, well, it must be talking about the Messiah prophesied. And so they have to say, hey, get the experts. We need the smart people to come and tell us where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Even in a time when people were actively looking for the Messiah, his prophesied birthplace was not common knowledge. Bethlehem is unimportant in human history. It's unimportant in the day when Jesus is born. It's unimportant throughout the majority, the vast majority, 99% of Israel's history. And yet it's not unimportant to God because there God is going to do a work. And you might think, I come from a small place. I come from nobody important, nowhere special. I don't have much to bring. My background is not impressive. Right? And even if you have an impressive background, there's always somebody who will make your background feel small. You get a degree, somebody has two degrees. You get two degrees, somebody has uh, you know, two degrees plus a higher degree. Oh, I've got my master's, somebody has an extra master's. I've got two masters, somebody has their doctorate. There's always going to be somebody to outshine you. And yet God looks at these places that the world deems as small. Do you might remember when we were studying the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus said that up from the beginning of the world until right before his coming, there was no one more important, no one greater than all human history than John the Baptist. And we talked about it at the time, how if you got a list of historians in a room, you're the top historians, and you say, hey, from, from, from the beginning of recorded human history until the time of Christ, who is the greatest person in human history? I guarantee none of them would say John the Baptist. I mean, one of them might throw it out if they knew the reference as a joke, but none of them would say that. God sees the world differently. He sees our situation differently. The world likes to write people off. You're too old, you're too young. You're too tall, you're too short. You're this gender, not that gender. God looks and says, I don't care. I have a plan for you. And if you will surrender yourself to me, then I will use you for that plan. There's no small place. There's no small beginning. There's no person that you know, might be passed over and they say, well, I can't be used of God. That's nonsense. Jesus being born in Bethlehem is a testimony. It is a witness to us that God does not care what our origins or situation is. If he wants to use us and if we will surrender to him, then it will happen. There's also no forgotten promises. You can go read this on your own. 
later, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, shameless plug, we'll be getting there uh, probably in a month or two uh, on the 20-minute Bible study. We're currently in the book of 2 Samuel. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises King David that the Messiah, the ruler for whose rule there will be no end, would come from his line, from his descendants. Micah chapter 5 is reaffirming that promise that the Messiah would come from the line of King David. What that tells me is this, just as there are no small places with God, just as there is no person who is, is too small or too unimportant or whatever so that God can't use them, there is no forgotten promise. What promises has God made to you? In the Bible, God has made general promises to his people that he will not abandon or forsake us, that his plans are for our good and not for our evil, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. These are promises given in general terms. And then there are specific promises words or promises through prophecy, through scripture, through prayer that are revealed to Christians over time. There are things that have been spoken into my life and that God by his grace has allowed me to speak into the lives of others. I remember being 19 years old and this kind of goes back to the no small places thing. I was 19 years old. I was at a leaders and pastors conference in Austria and it was for church leaders from the group of churches I was a part of all across Europe. And I was there from England and there were people there from France and Germany and Spain and Austria and, and into Eastern Europe, Hungary, Romania, Ukraine, Russia, all over the place. There's about 400 leaders and pastors and people who just heroes of mine. And while we were there in a time of prayer, in a time where, where the, the person leading the meeting said, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you to share with us, then be bold and, and share what the Spirit of God gives you. And as we were there and praying, there was a specific verse, uh, verses from the Bible that I felt compelled to share with the group meeting. And remember, I'm 19 years old. I'm brand new. Now, you know what? I've got a healthy amount of confidence in my life and I always have. But in that moment, I had to really pray, Lord, is this from you? Because I don't want to stand up. I, I have a lot of confidence, but I don't want to stand up if this isn't from you. And I prayed and I felt convinced it was. So I stood up and I shared those verses and I sat back down. And the person in front of me turned around. I think I've shared this story before, but the person in front of me turned around and said, Thank you. I was just praying and God used those verses to answer my prayer. I said, cool, that's awesome. I'm, I'm happy, you know. A year later, totally random, at a different pastor's conference, the two of us ended up staying, we had a mutual friend, and we ended up staying at the house of this mutual friend. We didn't know we were gonna be there. And we sat in this friend's living room and he shared what God had done in that year. And you might remember, uh, if you check out our podcast, we did a Talk About Anything podcast a couple months ago with uh, a gal named Sarah Yardley. She leads that ministry that was started by this man 
And he's with the Lord now. He got cancer. He passed away. He's with the Lord. But she leads the ministry that he started. And it's still going. And I, I had like this really, really small part in that. I don't claim like, oh, I did this. I did very, I did nothing. But the Lord did something through me. And here I am, just this like 19-year-old punk that has no idea what he's doing. And yet God said, I'm going to use you. I'm going to show you. There's no forgotten promises. God made a promise. God spoke to this man through me. And then there have been times where God has spoken to me through other people. Prophetically, in my life, they have spoken the word of God. That's all prophecy means, to speak the word of God. They have spoken into my life in a divine way. And some of that I've seen fulfilled. Some of it I haven't yet. And there are still things that I say, Lord, I know you've spoken these things into my life and I don't see how they're going to work out, but I'm trusting you because there are no forgotten promises. Second Samuel 7 says, David, out of your line, out of your line will come the Messiah. But who's around to say, God, you promised David's long gone. His son Solomon, long gone. Anyone who was alive that might have heard, directly heard David say, hey, God spoke this to me. They're gone. And yet God is reaffirming to a new generation, I still am holding to that promise. I made that promise. I said it. It will be done. It will be done. We can trust and believe the words of God generally, And specifically, because God does not forget his promises. It matters that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why? Because the Messiah had to be from the line of King David. Now, could you be born a descendant of King David and be born somewhere else? Yes, 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 of course you could. But in being born in Bethlehem, it was about the signifying of his connection King David. And by doubling down on that, what God is saying to the people of Israel is, yes, your enemies are coming. Yes, the storm clouds are brewing. Yes, it looks like the strength of the royal house is gone. But I haven't forgotten my promise. I have not given up on what I have said I will do. And we have this tendency to want to just think, oh, you know what, God said, I think God said that, but you know what, it's been a couple days, it hasn't happened. What happens if God speaks something, but you don't see it for five years? But God said, I'm going to do this. And then in five years, he does it. Does that mean that he was like late? No, he just told you early. In that moment, when the fortunes of the nation were at their lowest when the storm clouds had gathered, when the strength of the house of David seemed like it was failing, God was reaffirming his promise. God's saying to the people by saying, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. There is no place that is too small for me to work. There is no situation that is too far gone for my promises to not be fulfilled. And there is no unfinished work. Now, as I read through Micah chapter 5, And you might say, Adam, why did you read the whole chapter? Because the only thing vaguely Christmassy is the whole thing about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Other than that, it doesn't seem super Christmassy. Why did I read the whole chapter? 
is because as I read the entirety of Micah chapter 5, as somebody who has read the Bible, Genesis, the Revelation, multiple times, as somebody who has done a lot of personal and, uh, you know, work-related study, in-depth study of the things regarding the end times, I see in the prophecy here the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. I see in the prophecy here the Babylonian captivity and a final assault on the people of Israel. Talked about in the book of the Revelation and hinted at in the prophecies of Ezekiel. And as I'm reading through these things, the, the fifth chapter of Micah ends with what is it that God says? I'm flip back over. And it says this. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols, your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you the Asherah poles when I demolish your cities and I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. There's no unfinished work. You see, what we're getting here is an insight into why, why it was that God was allowing this calamity to come on his people. The northern tribes had abandoned the worship of God. And as you, if you're reading through yourself, you'll see the Lord, L-O-R-D in all capitals. It's Yahweh or Jehovah specifying the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, as opposed to any other God somebody might proclaim. The northern kingdom of Israel, when, when Israel divided into two nations after King Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel, because they didn't want their people going to Jerusalem, the other nation's capital, for feasts and festivals, they didn't want them having some memory of allegiance there, they established a false worship system in the north with a false idol. So most of the priests, the Levites, traveled south. They said, we can't be part of this, so we're going south. But the people who stayed north, some went down, some would still be faithful, some would still make the trek and the journey out of their way, uncomfortable, inconvenient, but they would go. But most people stayed. They never had a good king. Their whole time the northern kingdom existed, the, the kingdom of Israel, that northern kingdom only had kings who were idolatrous, who were wicked people. But Israel's king right now, Israel sometimes had good kings, but right now they had a bad king, Ahaz, had set up idolatrous worship in the high places, in the groves, had sacrificed some of his own children in the fires of pagan worship, literally. He's saying, you guys are into occultic practices. There is idolatry. There is immorality. That's what the Asherah poles would indicate. There is uh, violence. And he's saying, when this judgment comes, that's going to be erased. Why is this being allowed? 
because that needs to be cleared out. There's no place that's too small. That's why Bethlehem is important. Because a place that is totally unimportant throughout human history is incredibly important in the plans of God. Just as people and places that seem totally unimportant to the world around us, including me and you, are important to the plans of God. There are no forgotten promises. God said, my, my Messiah will come from the line of David. And here he is reaffirming that. Finally, there is no unfinished work. That God has a work to do in each and every one of us. And the promise of Bethlehem is the promise of completed work. That God is not going to let things just be as they are. He is going to finally, when Jesus returns at his second coming, what the Bible calls the renewal of all things in the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to put things right. The violence, the idolatry, the immorality will be put away. What Jesus talked about when he said there's going to be the renewal of all things is what Micah chapter 5 and verses 10 through 15 that I just read is talking about this cleansing work. But before these days come and it happens by force, we can choose to surrender willingly. We can choose to surrender and say, I want that in me now. I want to surrender to God. I don't know what that means 100%, but I know that God is good and his ways are right. I know that the way I've been living hasn't been working out. I know that the world around me seems to be devoted to madness and I want the sanity of Jesus. I know that I have been trying to be religious or spiritual in my own strength and it has not worked. And I need the power of God that comes through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and the lives of believers. I need that. And wherever you are at, if you're just starting out square one, I need Jesus. Or if you've been a Christian a long time, but you know you need the work of the Holy Spirit in a new way in your life, just say, God, I need you. Start to pray. Start to talk to God where you are at. And he will hear that prayer. For he knows what he is doing. And there is no place that is too far gone. There is no person that's too, oh, God doesn't care about me. That's the whole point of Bethlehem. He does. There's no unfinished work. God wants to finish the work. You could be a Christian for 40 years. We're not done. God still has a work to finish in us. And there's no forgotten promise. When the Bible says that anyone who believes will be saved, that promise is not forgotten. When the Bible says that God loves the world so much that he gave Jesus so that whoever believes in him will not die but will have everlasting life, that promise is not forgotten. All we have to do is accept and receive and live in faith in that promise. And if that's where you're at, or if it's not where you're at, but you have questions, I'd love to hear from you. My email is adam at faithonhill.com. I'd just love to talk to you. You can email me anytime. Adam at faithonhill.com. God bless you. Merry Christmas. See you next Sunday.
In your darkest moment, don't forget that I have spoken these things. In your darkest moment, don't forget that Jesus is still victorious over sin. If you want to know the problems of recording at home, it's my dog. Barking at the FedEx driver while I'm trying to record a sermon. Scout, sit on the couch. Sit. All right, sit. There you go. Sit. Yeah. Good girl. <laughs>